Good morning, everyone. Please turn to John chapter 4. We began the study of chapter 4 last Sunday. We will get a little further in it today. And then we're going to have to have one more Sunday on it. It's a, a long chapter, 54 verses. So uh, you'll have to endure me today and one more Sunday. The last uh, Sunday as we began chapter 4, uh, we got all the way over to the in the middle of the dialogue with, uh, between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. But before we go back there and pick up where we left off last Sunday, I want to go back to the first three verses and mention something that I failed to mention last week when we were going over these verses. There in chapter 4, verses um, 1 through 3, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Judea. And I want us to look at verse 2 there, the parenthetical phrase, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. Already in chapter 3, toward the end, uh, we see that Jesus uh, had been baptizing. Uh, and now it's clarified that it wasn't actually Jesus doing the baptizing, but his disciples. Now keep in mind that uh, this is before the cross. Uh, this is before the Great Commission and baptism in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of sins, uh, that was yet to come. This is uh, the baptism of John. It's under discussion here. And we know that uh, the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. And I believe that uh, it is Mark's account in chapter 1 and verse 4 and that goes a little further and says that Jesus was baptizing uh, with the baptism unto repentance, unto salvation. And so this was the uh, baptism that you might could say was in force during this time. But I want to uh, emphasize the fact that uh, as we begin chapter 4, uh, that Jesus himself was not doing the baptizing. But I think there's some significance here that I failed to mention last week. Um, I think that uh, this shows a principle that the one who is administering baptism is not the primary thing here. It is the one who has rendered obedience to the gospel or obedience to Christ's commands uh, and is baptized, that that's the focus, that's the important thing, not the one doing or administering uh, the baptism. I think we can uh, 
see this a little bit more if you'll turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here you remember the Corinthians were involved in a little bit of sectarianism. And uh, as we get to 1 Corinthians 1, come down to verse 10, and we'll read through verse 17. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each one of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. And then he goes on. I think this is a parallel scripture to what we're looking at. Why did Jesus himself not baptize? Why did he delegate that to his disciples? And I think it's simply this, that... Uh, Human nature being what it is, we tend to uh, place importance on who it was that baptized us. And there were some uh, brethren, there were some people in that day and time that were pretty much out in the front of uh, the church at that time in Corinth. And there was some pride involved in saying, well, Apollos is the one that baptized me. Well, that's nothing. I was baptized by Paul. Well, that's nothing. I was baptized by Peter. And Paul just blows that all to pieces. You're missing the point. It's not the one doing the baptizing. But rather, who is being baptized? And so, uh, especially in third world countries where mission work is being carried out, it's pretty much an unwritten general rule that the missionaries refrain from actually doing the baptism because uh, they do uh, attach a great amount of importance and pride in uh, the one who baptizes. And so, for instance, when we were in Sierra Leone, we never baptized uh, my, me or uh, my co-workers, it was always the national Christians or the national uh, preachers who actually did the baptizing. That was not so much the case in, uh, in Russia and Romania, especially in third world countries. And so I think we need to remember that. It's not the one doing the baptizing, but it is uh, the one being baptized, and that's the focus. We'll have a little bit more to say about that a little bit later on. Uh, but for right now, let's get back over to where we left off last week. You know, Larry, uh, we don't take it quite to that extent today as far as who baptizes us. 
remember who it was. Oh, yeah. And they're, they're, we all have a reason for choosing a particular person who wants to baptize us. Right. Yeah, that's, that, that is a very true. Uh, I remember who baptized me. And uh, I think Janet probably remembers that. <laughs> uh, and I, I did feel a, a great amount of uh, pleasure and satisfaction with, with him uh, baptizing me. But I think he would be the first to say, as well as any other preacher, that it's not me. Uh, you're the one in the spotlight uh, who is being baptized. And, and that should be what is emphasized when you say, I was baptized into Christ. And that is the important thing. Okay. Coming on over now down to about verse 19. I think this is about where we had gotten to last week. We are uh, in the scene where Jesus is alone at the uh, Jacob's well outside the village of Sychar in Samaria. And it's in the middle of the day. It's hot. He's weary from the journey. He's thirsty. And along comes this woman at that hour of the day by herself with her water pot to draw water. And so she approaches and Jesus is sitting there. And uh, Jesus just uh, breaks the ice and uh, he engages her in a conversation. He just simply asks, please give me a, a drink of, of water. And so that uh, starts the discussion and she uh, responds to him, uh, uh, you're a Jew, and you're a man. Uh, why are you asking me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? You know how our relations are between you Jews and we Samaritans. Who do you think you are? What, what are you doing? And so Jesus just uh, picks it up there. Let's come in uh, down to verse 19. Uh, already she has uh, gotten into it with Jesus. And uh, Jesus reveals that he has intimate knowledge of her past, of her sinful past. And that uh, she was not living morally as she should. And he talks about her husband. He said, go bring your husband here. And so beginning with verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Starts off saying, uh, you're a Jew. And then it progresses a little bit later on, and uh, he is, Sir. Now, in her estimation, he's a prophet. So let's begin reading with verse 19 and 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Uh, going on a little further, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So here we see that the woman is going from curiosity with this strange man and his behavior. And she's going from that to, uh, you might say, uh, a preliminary faith. She begins to see Jesus as a prophet. He does know her past. How in the world can this be? And so her curiosity is being roused, and now it's going from just curiosity to the beginnings of faith. She sees him as a prophet. So she asked him, and it's a little strange that this is how she responds. She asked him a question about worship. There was a difference in the worship of the Samaritans and the Jews. And I, I don't know, I'm not really, uh, haven't really decided which one probably is the case, but either she is uncomfortable with how the conversation is going, him revealing her past, her sinful past in her present situation. So I don't know if she's beginning to feel very, very uncomfortable and for that reason decides to change the subject. Or if she is maybe thinking of something else. But you know, this is a, a common occurrence. Uh, those of us who have... Uh, engaged in various Bible studies through the years know that very often this is the case. There is a tendency for the one that we are studying with to, uh, to want to start chasing rabbits. I think Brother Rob uh, addressed this a little bit uh, a week ago when he was with us. But, uh, to, you know, when it begins to get a little bit too personal and a little bit too uncomfortable, change the subject. So I don't know if that's what she's doing here. I rather think, though, that uh, she knows that this man, who has to be a prophet, knows her past, and he knows her sinful condition. And she knows that she does need to be cleansed. She does need to be forgiven of her sins. And... At that time, the, the place to receive this was uh, in the temple. It was in worship and offering sacrifice. So maybe she is sincerely asking, where should she go to be cleansed? We say that here at uh, Bethel is where uh, we need to go on this mountain. That's what we've always understood of course, uh, that goes way back to Old Testament times when uh, the king of the north made a decision to change the place of worship. And they have kept hung on to this uh, through the years. Or should I go to Jerusalem uh, where you Jews worship in order to be cleansed? And I rather think that this is more the case rather than just wanting to change the subject because Jesus uh, follows this line. He doesn't say, well, no, that's a good question. 
but I'm going to defer that until later and continue on. No, he took up her uh, question and he made comments on it. So for that reason, probably she is sincere here. She's wanting to know, where do I go to be cleansed? You're right. I'm not right with God. Uh, I'm an outcast. I have done wrong. I am in sin. I need to be cleansed. So Jesus goes into a discussion on true worship. But I think here with a woman, at this point, I think we're beginning to see a little bit of, of hunger for righteousness. Jesus had been talking about living water. I think she's already begun to drink some of this living water. And uh, she, it, it's having an effect on her. She's no longer rebuffing him or rejecting him or questioning his audacity. She is, is really honing in this, this, something about this man. And she begins to want to know, I, I need, he's revealed what I probably know already. I need to be cleansed. And so with verses 21 through 24 that we looked at, Jesus begins to talk about, he answers her question. And he tells her, you know, well, Jerusalem is where you should worship. Uh, salvation is of the Jews. Uh, yeah, there in, uh, on this mountain that you spoke of is, is not the true place of worship right now. But he says three things about worship in answering her that I think is very important. We've often referred to this scripture in definition of what true worship is. We see three principles about worship that uh, Jesus brings out here. First of all, uh, he mentions God. He is the proper object of our worship. And he mentions that God must be worshipped in spirit or the right attitude and in truth. In other words, in the right manner. I really think that a good corollary here of uh, true worship that reflects what Jesus has just said here is really seen in uh, a scripture that you're familiar with, the call of Isaiah uh, to be prophet, a prophet of God, over in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, Turn over there with me real quick. I think it's worth our time to read just a few verses about worship. Uh, in Isaiah 6, the first eight verses. Isaiah 6, beginning with verse 1 and going through verse 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up in the train of his robe Filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. 
The house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. I think four things are brought out here in the call of Isaiah that uh, describes the true worship in spirit and truth that Jesus said in answer to the woman. First of all, in verses 1 through 4, I think in true worship there is an awareness or there should be an awareness of God's presence. Man, that was obvious here in Isaiah's call. God is with us. Jesus is with us in this auditorium right now. He's with us. And we need to fully enjoy our fellowship and everything and worship. But let's always remember who is here with us. If there were only two or three in here this morning, the Lord would be with us. It's part of worship and awareness of the God of God's presence. And then in verse 5 of that reading, there should be a consciousness of sin. Really. I mean, we can be the best that we can be and still fall short. We do fall short. We're not perfect. And we need to be aware of that. That always we have sin to be repented of. And to strive to do better. Then in verses 6 through 7, there needs to be a sense of clean, of cleanliness, of cleaning, of cleansing, and forgiveness of sins. As imperfect as we are, and as sinful as we are, we're in Christ. When we obeyed the gospel through faith and repentance and confession of his name before men and being immersed in water in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of sins, we're forgiven. And according to John in 1 John 1, the first several verses, if we continue to walk in the light of God's teaching, then the blood of Jesus' son literally keeps on cleansing us from our sins. And that's where we are. So in worship, there needs to be a consciousness of sin, but also an awareness that we have been forgiven of that sin. And by the ever-flowing blood of Christ, and as long as we stay in the light, that blood continues to cleanse us of our sins. And then finally in verse 8, there needs to be a response of our worship. A response of the soul with reference to doing God's will. After all of this experience, Isaiah said, 
here am I, send me. What's our response after having worshiped with the assembly? Here am I, send me, use me, Lord. I remember over in Florence years ago when it used to be IBC, International Bible College, that in their auditorium, over the back door there, as you would leave that auditorium to go out, there's a sign that says, uh, on the other side of these doors is the world. It begins there. It actually begins in that room, doesn't it? That should be the response of true worship. We can do the right things and we can say the right words, but without the right uh, respect and right spirit, then our worship can be in vain. Which one? The, in Isaiah? The, the Isaiah passage. I was saying it's a parallel. That here, okay. in the call of Isaiah, what he experienced to me mirrors what Jesus had said about his worship of God in spirit and in truth. I think spirit and in truth, I think some of these things of Isaiah, that's my opinion. Okay. And the reason I pitched it in there. Okay. Moving along to verse 25 in our text that we read. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. I believe the woman here is on the verge of realizing the truth about Jesus. And confesses her belief and hope concerning the Savior to come. Now remember, the Samaritans really only recognized the first four books of the Old Testament. But still, they, they believed uh, in someone who would be coming uh, that would be the Redeemer. They believed that the Savior would be a prophet and an earthly one like David. As I understand it, the name for him, according to the Samaritans, was the Restorer. I don't know Hebrew, but I think the word is Taib or something like that. However, this woman uses the Jewish term for this uh, prophet to come, Messiah. And she confesses, well, I know, and I, I really, I think she is saying, I believe that Messiah is coming, who will be the Christ. Note now that she has gone from uh, rejecting Jesus, rebuking him as just a mere Jew in verse 9, to sir in verse 11, and now in verse 19, a prophet, and in a little bit when we get down to verse 29, recognizing him as the Christ. And that's the progression that she takes as a result of Jesus engaging her. This woman is not far from the truth. Then in verse 26, Jesus helps her to make the connection. He just comes out and tells her that I'm the Messiah. Don't you wish that you could be there and witness like a fly on the wall this whole discourse of how Jesus 
went from point A to point B, C, D, and right, right through the whole thing. And how it was that he could tell this woman, still just the two of them there, I am the Messiah. Uh, I, I can't imagine. Uh, this is the uh, climax of the dialogue. And really, it, it's rather unusual for Jesus to make this uh, rather direct and dramatic declaration to a single person, uh, much less a woman of Samaria, a sinful woman of Samaria. And yet it is to her that Jesus, in a personal one-on-one -on -one context, says, I am the Messiah. Verses 27 through 30, it gets interesting at this point. Not that it hasn't already been. But in verses 27 through 30, at this point, the disciples come back from the city. Remember, they had gone in, leaving Jesus by himself uh, to get food. And uh, they came back now at, at this point. Jesus is there with the woman. He's just told her that he is the Christ. She's already known that he is able to see into her soul, knows who she is, where she's come from, what she's done, and where she is now. And he's just told her that he is the Messiah, the one to come, and that he is here, and it is I who am speaking to you. Right at this point, the disciples come back. And as they approach Jesus, there he is, talking with this woman. Very unusual. This is their master. And he's engaged in something that is really against the norm for Jews and Samaritans at that time. They were amazed that he was speaking with a Samaritan woman. And they, vo they voiced their surprise uh, at the scene before them. The woman, evidently seeing the others arrive, she leaves everything behind. She doesn't even carry her water pot. I don't think there's even any water in it. Uh, all of a sudden, her mind is a thousand miles away from drawing water for the daily duties. She drops it, and she comes back into the city. And in a sense, she... She just loses all of her shame. She tells the others who she believes this man to be. I met a man who knows everything that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And so on the strength of her witness, the town gathers to see Jesus. Now think about that for a moment. Uh, can it be that, that this woman comes back in and maybe to those men at the gate just simply saying, uh, I met a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And on the basis of that, the whole town begins to come out to see this man. I believe heavily implied here is the fact that she just laid her soul bare. He was right. This is who I am. You know who I am. I live amongst you. And she just lays it all out there. 
But this man knew every bit of it. But he didn't condemn me. Rather, he talked to me words of spiritual wisdom about worship and about himself. He said he was the Christ. Uh, and I think still it points back to the witness of this woman and what she experienced. Most, if not all, of the town begins to pour out to see for themselves. So verses 31 through 34, in the meantime, again, the apostles are back with Jesus now. The woman has gone into town and she is telling people about what has happened. And the apostles, missing the significance of the moment, uh, the Lord uses this moment to Teach them a lesson based on what had happened. They are focusing on the physical. They went in to get food. They've got food. They're bringing it back. Here, Rabbi, eat. And he doesn't want to eat. Has anybody else given him some food? Why, why isn't he hungry? I mean, we're all hungry. That's why we went in to get food. And Jesus replied to them, you know, my food is to do the will of him who, who sent me. Uh, they are, are missing an opportunity here. Uh, then the words that Jesus says in verse 35. Look at it again. Do you not say... There are still four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white unto harvest. Lift up your eyes. It's a reference, and remember yet last week I asked you to try to paint a picture of this whole thing in your mind. Try to see it like you would on a movie screen. Uh, what has happened here? Jesus is there with his apostles now. They're talking to him about eating. You need to eat something. And all the while, Jesus is able to see to a distance the city. And here comes this great throng of people coming out of the city toward them. And he lifts up his eyes. He tells the others, lift, lift up your eyes. Look! Look at what is coming. You say that physically there are still four months before the harvest is ready. I'm telling you, the spiritual harvest is right now. It's already white unto harvest. I think probably the reference from what I've read uh, probably indicates that the clothing of the people mostly was white. Uh, dyed garments was rather expensive at that in that day and time. So most people, just, their garments were white. And here, perhaps uh, uh, against the green of uh, the uh, the ground, the landscape is this throne of white just coming toward Jesus and his apostles. It's the hardest. And he says, "Lift up your eyes." And look, you remember the last point in Isaiah that I made reference to, the response of true worship would be to uh, 
saying, here am I, send me. I need to be about my father's business. I need to be doing the will of the father. And so now here is this great opportunity. I remember years ago when we would be coming back from uh, Sierra Leone, we would land in Huntsville, and it was usually uh, in the fall, and the cotton fields around the airport had already been defoliated, and it's just a sea, a blanket of white. They're so beautiful and so welcome to see. And I think that is what Jesus is saying here, just all. Uh, uh, uh. The fields are already white unto harvest. They're coming to us. Are we ready for them? You see the obvious application to us. We just had an excellent workshop last week on personal evangelism. We need to lift up our eyes. Get them away from the physical necessities of day-to-day living. We need to lift up our eyes and be attuned, focused into on the same wavelength of opportunities that the Lord presents to us. They are there. But we're not going to see them if we don't lift up our eyes and be expecting them, be looking for them, and then seizing the moment when the opportunities are made available. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good point, and I think we'll see something that uh, addresses itself to that a little bit later on when we get to uh, the response. Uh, many believed. Uh, many more. On over in Acts chapter 8, you remember, when uh, there was the dispersion for, from the persecution. Went everywhere preaching the word, and Philip went down to Samaria, and there was a great harvest there. Maybe even there is an allusion to that harvest. I'd like to think that many of the same people that we see coming out of the city now were among that group that Philip preached to. He went to the city of Samaria. Here, uh, Jesus and them were outside the, the village of Sychar, but all of it Samaria. And I'd like to think that that was a part of the spiritual heart. Well, you know, and you know, I thought about maybe, maybe it was the seed, he would plant the seed for Yeah, the yeah, I think so. Okay, we will try to wrap this up um, next week. And then uh, week after next, we will be ready for uh, your teacher teaching chapter 5. Thank you.